Genesis chapter 44, this is study number 77, and today the subject is the final trial. The final trial. Chapter 44, we'll begin in verse 25. This is Judah now talking. He's talking to the governor of Egypt, who is his brother Joseph, but he doesn't recognize Joseph as his brother that he and his other brothers sold 20 years ago into slavery. And now, by the providence of God, he is the governor of Egypt. And so Judah says, verse 25, Our father said, Go again and buy us some food. And we said to him, We can't go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And thy servant, my father, said unto us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. The one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not. That's Joseph. He thinks, Jacob thinks his son Joseph was eaten up by beast. And if you take this one also from me, that's Benjamin, and mischief befall him, you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come, he's talking to Joseph, the governor, doesn't know he's his brother. He's saying, now, Mr. Governor, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad Benjamin is not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die And thy servants will be responsible for bringing down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For thy servant became surety. I became the guarantor for the lad, for Benjamin, unto my father. I said to him, if I don't bring him down again to thee, I will bear the blame forever for my father And now, therefore, verse 33, I pray thee, let thy servant, let me stay instead of Benjamin. Let me be his substitute. Keep me, make me a slave, put me in jail. Instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers and go back home. How shall I go up to my father and the Lord be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come upon my father. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let God's people say praise the Lord. And let's petition the Lord now. Let's stretch out our hands to the Lord and petition him to help us. Father, I stretch my hand to thee. No I know if I withdraw myself from thee, there shall I go. Amen, and you may be seated. Let me just say this while you're being seated. 
We'd love for you to join us on Tuesday evenings at 6.45. We're having a study of grace, letting each letter represent a certain teaching. G is goodness, R is righteousness. And this past Tuesday evening, we looked at the atonement, which is the A in grace. And God willing, this coming Tuesday, we'll look at covenant, the C in grace. The theme of this study today is the final trial. This is the final trial that Joseph is going to put his brothers through. This is their second trip to Egypt for food, and this is their third appearance before him. And Joseph has tried them sorely. They have been tried by Joseph regarding Simeon, their brother. He was put in prison. They are now being tried by Joseph regarding their youngest brother, Benjamin. They have been tried by Joseph regarding their money. They were accused of being thieves. They have been tried by Joseph regarding his silver cup, which was found in the sack of Benjamin. And they were accused of Benjamin of being a thief and the rest of them of being supporters of that. And they have been tried regarding their aged father. But this is the final trial. They have been tested regarding their love for their father. Joseph, if you look in chapter 44, verses 16 and 17, Joseph has threatened to keep Benjamin and let the rest of them go home. The constituents of this final trial is what I want to share with you right now. What is it that makes this final trial so trying? Well, there are five things. One, it was unexpected. Two, it was gut-wrenching. Thirdly, it was a fatal blow. Fourthly, it was divinely directed. And fifthly, it leaves them hopeless. Let's look at those five characteristics of this final trial that make it so trying to them. First, it was unexpected. Now, if you look in chapter 43, you don't have to look there now, but I'm telling you where it is. Chapter 43, verses 24 through 44, you'll find that the governor, again, I keep telling you this so you remember, they don't know that the governor is their brother that they sold 20 years ago into slavery. They don't know that. And so here, the, the governor invites them. That's in chapter 43, verses 24 through 44. The governor invites them up to his house for a big party. They dine with the governor. They laugh with the governor. They drink and they feast with the governor. They talked about all kinds of things with the governor. And even Simeon, who had been in prison, he was released and he was there at the party with the governor. And Benjamin, the brother they were so concerned about, everything's okay with Benjamin. And the governor seemed to like Benjamin because, as we noticed, he gave him five times as much food as the others. 
That's chapter 43, verses 31 through 34. So they had a great time with the governor. But now things are changing. Now they're in for a shock. Because while they're on the way home, now they're being arrested. So this is totally unexpected. Secondly, look in chapter 44, verses 4 through 12. It was what I call gut-wrenching. Have you ever had something that so upset you that you felt like you were in knots inside? You felt like you couldn't eat. You felt like almost that you couldn't stand up or walk or get out of bed. The next morning after that blowout party that they had with the governor, they started for home and everybody was high. And Simeon was out of prison and Benjamin was out of danger. And the, the issue regarding the corn and, and the money, that was all resolved. And they couldn't wait to get home to tell their father how great everything went how everything went just right tell Jacob all about it and then the bottom dropped out they'd hardly gotten out of the city when they were halted by a special guard of the governors and they recognized the man leading that group it was the governor's steward it was the governor's main man who carried out the governor's orders. And they wondered what in the world could be wrong. Well, he told them. He said, listen, the governor's silver cup is missing, and somebody took it. Well, they began immediately to say, we didn't take it. I mean, look, we brought all the money back that we were accused of, teach of taking the first time. We brought all that money back, and we doubled the money. Why in the world would we... Still the silver cup. They said, look at chapter 44 and verse 9. Chapter 44 and verse 9. With whomsoever of thy servants that silver cup be found, let him die, and we'll be our Lord, we'll be the Lord, the governors, we'll be the governor's slaves. That's what they said, and the, the man, the steward that was leading this group to arrest them, he said in verse 10, I agree, let it be according to your words. With whomsoever that cup shall be found, he said, he'll be blameless, or he'll be my servant, he'll be my slave, and you will be blameless. I'm not going to keep you for something that somebody else did. Well, they began searching the cups, and they started with the oldest guy's cup, and they wound up with the last cup of the youngest, who was Benjamin's cup. And what do you know, when they opened up his cup, his sack there, there was the silver cup in the top of his sack. And you know what happened? Their hearts dropped. They were absolutely in shock. They were in confusion. They said, they had just said, let the guy with whom the cup is found be executed. <laughs> and the very one that they are trying to protect, that's the one in whose sock the cup was found. So it was a gut-wrenching trial. Thirdly, this final trial was a fatal blow. Chapter 44, verse 12 he searched, this is when he was searching 
the sacks. He began at the oldest sack and left off at the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. You see here, when that cup was found in Benjamin's sack, this means that they were struck at their most vulnerable point. The silver cup was in Benjamin's sack. <laughs> Benjamin, the very one that they're hoping to protect. Benjamin, the hope of their father. Benjamin, the link to all the promises made to Abraham, their great-grandfather. If Benjamin was taken prisoner and they returned home without him, they felt that their father Jacob would die. And so it was a fatal blow. In the fourth place, this final trial was divinely directed. Look at what Judah says in verse 16 of chapter 44. Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? He says, God has found out the iniquity of thy servants. My friends, any time something is found out, we may not realize it, but it is God who finds it out. He might use detectives, he might use this person and that person and the other person, but you can be sure that God Almighty is involved with everything that takes place in his world. Everything. He either, as in the case of Job, gives permission for something to be done, or he himself brings something to pass. You remember, he had given uh, Joseph, when he was only 17 years old, these two dreams, and the two dreams said, you're going to be exalted, and your brothers are going to bow to you. And Joseph didn't know what those dreams meant, and certainly his brothers didn't know. But here it is now, 20 years later, and he's on the throne, and they've already pledged themselves to be his servant. But when Judah confesses to the governor here, he says, God has found out the iniquity of thy servants. And he, as I'm going to point out to you again and again, they had forgotten all about what they did 20 years ago. Just like we forget what we've done in our lives. We forget, but God hasn't forgotten and they have to be taken care of, my friends. They have to be cleansed. You have to be forgiven of them. You've got to have something or somebody that can clear your record. And I have to have something that can clear my record. This thing was divinely directed. It seemed to Judah that the very hand of God was against him. In spite of the fact that they had tried to do everything right, everything was going wrong. And here's what makes it so confusing. They know they are innocent, even though they appear to be guilty. Hey, the tables have turned. Years ago, when they sold their brother, they came home to their father, and they said, we're innocent, but they were guilty. Now they're innocent, but they appear to be guilty. When they lied to their father about Joseph, they showed their father Joseph's coat with the blood on it that had come from an animal. 
And they tried to pretend that they were filled with sorrow because their brother Joseph was gone. And, you know, we studied how they were jealous and envious of him. They were in reality glad to be rid of him, but they pretended that their hearts were broken with their father. And now it looks like the very hand of God has found them. This is their final trial. And in the fifth place, what makes this trial so tough is their case seems hopeless. In chapter 44, verses 13 through 16, notice what Judah says, speaking for his brothers again, verse 16. They fell on their faces, verse 14, they fell down on their faces before their brother Joseph, who's the governor, and he said, what in the world have you done? Verse 15, don't you know that I can find out such things? Don't you know that a man like me knows what's going on in his nation and people coming here from foreign nations trying to pretend like there's something? And they're stealing, just steal my cup off of my table? <laughs> and uh, they said in verse 16, what shall we say? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? They can't. They can't clear themselves. God has found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also with whom the cup is found. They are in a tough, tough situation here. Their case seems Hopeless. They are absolutely struck with horror. They are in a state of total confusion. They are so distraught that it says in verse 13 that they tore their clothes. A sign of severe lamentation, weeping over a hopeless situation. Tearing your clothes in the Old Testament and the New Testament testifies that you feel there's no remedy. So all of this final trial, what made it so tough? It was unexpected. It was gut-wrenching. It was a final blow. It was divinely directed and hopeless. No remedy. They're at a dead-end street with no way out. This is what they experienced for. Now let's view their perplexity from another perspective. Yes, it is the man Joseph, their long-lost brother, the governor, who's orchestrating this drama. But behind Joseph is the wise and compassionate and sovereign God working, he's working in their situation. Listen now. For their good. <laughs> He's working for their good. You know, a lot of times when you have trouble, when I have trouble, and we, we want to say, where in the world, where is God? Where is the God that I'm trusting? Lord, where are you? What is going on here? What are you doing to me? Do you realize that Jacob said the same thing? Look in chapter 42. Let's just go back a couple of chapters. Chapter 42. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. When he came back after that first trip, 
And they found that money in their sack. <laughs> and they found, and then Jacob, Jacob said, where's, ben, where's Simeon? Where, where's Simeon? They said, well, he's, he's, in, he's in prison in Egypt. He's in prison? In, yeah, the governor put him in prison. He kept him as hostage. He said, he's not going to release him until we come back with Benjamin. What did Jacob say about all of that? What's behind all of this stuff? Well, God's working out his sovereign will. He's working out his sovereign will. He's going to save the nation of Israel, and he's going to save them by getting them down to Egypt. But the way he's going to get them down to Egypt is not the way they would have chosen to get down to Egypt. <laughs> you see, when, when the Lord gave Joseph those dreams and told him he's going to be exalted, he didn't tell him everything he'd have to go through to get there to that exalted position. Our Lord Jesus Christ was born into this world as the Lord, as the King, but look at what he had to go through to sit upon the throne, the right hand of the throne of God. And I've got news for you. I know this is not a popular doctrine in a day and age when all we want to hear is uh, about uh, how everything can go good for us and you just believe this and this will happen. You believe that and that will happen and you do this and this will happen. And basically, we're basically told, you know, that anytime you get sick, I mean, God's going to recover you. I'm here to tell you that ain't so. I'm sorry, that's not so. The Lord's going to put you through some trials. He's going to put you some trouble to find out if you're really His. That's what He's going to do. Every single saint in the Word of God, including the Son of God, had trials. The old Puritans used to say God had only one son without sin. He had no sons without suffering. Somebody said recently that God doesn't have anything to do with suffering. He doesn't have anything to do with when you get sick. He doesn't have anything to do with when you get ill. My friends, if you just read the Bible, the nation of Israel, they've known nothing but suffering. Tell me about the 12 apostles. Tell me how they all died. Every single one of them were martyred for doing what? For standing for Jesus as Messiah. They said Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And every single one of them died a martyr's death. They took John and threw him in a pot of boiling oil. And God preserved him. Put him on the Isle of Patmos. Because he wanted him to write the book of Revelation. It is through much tribulation that we shall enter the kingdom of God. That's what the scripture says. Well what does Jacob say here? Chapter 42, chapter 42, in verse 36, Jacob their father said unto them, Me you have bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, Simeon is not, and now you're going to take Benjamin away. Watch this statement now. All these things are against me. All these things are against me. No. No, God is working in those things for his good. But he can't see it right now. And you may not be able to see when you're in trouble. I don't know why the Lord let me have two more kidney stones. <laughs> 
I don't know. I told uh, somebody, I said, just tell them that the devil threw two stones at me. <laughs> I don't know why. And I know this, the Lord knows why. There's a reason why. There's a reason. Nothing happens in his universe without his permission or without his bringing it to pass. How did the devil get to Job? We know that story. We've read it over and over and over again. We read that twice the devil went before the Lord and had to get permission to deal with Job. And the Lord said the first time, you got him. He's in your hands. Everything he's got is in your hands, but don't touch him. And the second thing, second time Satan went before the Lord, the Lord said, okay, I'll let you touch him. But you can't take his life. And Job was smitten with boils. And said when his friends got there, he, they were so astonished at his appearance that said they sat there for seven days and didn't say anything to it. My goodness alive, my friends, the Lord loves his people and he is unlike us. He's going to do what is best for us, what is best for our spiritual condition. What is best for us in conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, as we're promised in the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2. We are predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what it says in the scripture. This trial, this final trial that the Lord is directing through Joseph is designed to stir up the consciences of these men. For 20 years, they had been without a conscience, though they had done a horrible thing. They slept well, they ate well, they fed well, they loved their wives, they raised their children, they did everything apparently with no feelings of guilt or remorse. They had literally forgotten all about selling their brother, that is, until the famine happened. And then they had to think about going to Egypt. But even though, I'm sure, when they thought about going down to Egypt, they thought, my goodness, with the hundreds of thousands of people in, in Egypt, they're slim to no chance that we'll ever run into Joseph that we sold 20 years ago. And not only that, but if we find him, if we happen to see him, if we ha surely he's a slave. And God had made him the governor of Egypt. But they don't have any remorse about it. They don't have any feelings about it. But the merciful Lord is going to have pity on them. He's going to arrest them on their way to hell. He's going to halt their wild careers. And this is the way the Lord brings people to himself. This is the way he brings men to repentance. You know what we want today? I'm going to be teaching you on this in a while. I don't know. Maybe, maybe most of you don't want to hear it. <laughs> but the Lord doesn't save anybody through faith. That, that faith is not accompanied with repentance. Metanoia, the word translated repentance, means a change of mind. Meta is change, noia is mind. There's a change of mind, that's translated repentance. And when there's a change of mind, you're different. And guess what? When you're different, you will act different. 
You will act differently. You will live differently because you've had a change inside. And without repentance, there is no saving faith. And people, what they want today is they want a Savior that takes them on to heaven when they die, but they don't want anything to do with him much while they're here. Just believe on Jesus, and you're bound for heaven. That's what people are being told today, but that's not what the Scripture said. The merciful Lord is going to have pity on these boys. He's going to arrest them. And this is the way he deals. He's going to wound them, but not to destroy them, but to heal them. He's going to heal their hardened hearts. His design is to wound their souls so that they, from their souls, will cry to him for mercy. Judah just said it. He said, God has found out the iniquity of thy servant. And I will tell you something. We have to understand that there is no escaping God. There's no escaping God. And so they're going to be brought to where they will cry to him for mercy and they will confess their guilt and they will own their sins and they will take sides with God against themselves. This accusation, they're stealing the silver cup, is the straw that broke the camel's back. And so far as they know, they have no defense, they have no way to prove their innocence this is the bottom line. I want you to turn in your Bibles, in the interest of time, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. And just listen to me while you're turning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke 19. And listen to me now. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. As we learned last Tuesday evening in our study, the concept of reconciliation, that word, English word, reconciliation, is borrowed from the world of the money changer. It has to do with the exchange of equivalent values. If you give me a quarter and I give you two dimes and a nickel, we are reconciled. If you give me a dollar and I give you four quarters, we are reconciled. So this word reconciliation has to do with the exchange of equivalent values. Now the Bible itself uses the word reconciliation because when you talk about two parties having to be reconciled, it implies that they are separated. It implies that one of them has been an offender and the other one has been offended and they are separated. And something has to be done to bring them back together, to reconcile them. This is the way the Bible uses the term reconciliation. Now, to effect reconciliation, somebody has to repent. Now, Joseph is the governor, <laughs> and he's not going to repent. And so the offense falls upon the ten sons of Leah, Bila, and Zilpah. Besides, Joseph is the offended one. He's the one that was sold 20 years ago. He doesn't have anything to repent about. 
Here's what the Bible says in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither is he the son of man that he should repent. He doesn't have a change of mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. And when the Bible talks about reconciliation, this is what it says. It says, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, God has never changed. We're the ones who moved. We're the ones who changed. We're the ones who uh, caused the offense. And as a result of that, we're the ones that have to come back, have to have a change of mind, have to repent, come back to God. He's, he's where he was the whole time. You understand what I'm saying? He's never changed. We're the ones. Be ye reconciled to God. It doesn't say God's reconciled to us. It says you be reconciled to God. Now, so for reconciliation to happen, repentance must happen. As long as the heart is unchanged, the person is unchanged. And as long as the person who caused the offense does not have a change of mind, the offense remains. Someone is still the offender and someone is still offended. So the design of all of this with the brothers of Joseph is to effect repentance. Now let me ask you a, a simple question. Can recon reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers happen if they do not repent? Let me give you a scenario. Suppose... When they finally learn that the governor is really their brother Joseph. Suppose when they finally learn that the governor is their brother Joseph, they all stepped back and shouted, We still hate you! Do you think reconciliation could happen? No. It could not happen, and it won't happen with God. It won't happen with God. What was their initial, what was their initial problem with Joseph? But here's what it says in Genesis 37 verse 8. Shall thou indeed reign over us? That's what they said to Joseph, Genesis 37 8. Shall thou indeed reign over us? What is the problem this world has with Christ? problem this world has with Christ is twofold. It's the same two problems that the brothers of Joseph had with him. Number one, they don't want him reigning over them. Number two, they don't want him being sovereign over them. Now look in Luke's gospel, chapter 19. Luke's gospel, chapter 19. Now, Jesus is going to tell this parable. I wish I had time to really exegete it for you, really open it up. But we're just going to look at briefly as it applies to our message today. Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 27. All of you have read this before. A nobleman went into a far country, verse 12, to receive for himself a kingdom. He called his ten servants, he delivered unto them ten pounds, and he said, Occupy till I come. What is their problem? Look at verse 14 now. His citizens hated him 
and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Is that their problem? That's the problem of the world with a Christ who reigns. Now, we don't mind having Jesus on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night. We don't mind having little Jesus born in a stable uh, on Christmas Eve, one of the biggest holidays of the year. But we don't want a Jesus that reigns and rules. We don't want a Jesus that will punish folks if they don't get in line with his will. We don't want that. But that's the Jesus of the Bible. I remember old Ralph Barnett Somebody said to him, a woman said to him, well, my brother Barnard, your Jesus is my devil. And Brother Barnard said, you better get ready to do business with the devil then, because that's the Jesus of the Bible. He's, he reigns. He's reigning right now. He's reigning right now, and he's sovereign right now. Notice verse 14, it said, they don't want him to reign. All right, look at verse 27. We're going to get back to verse 27. Verse 27, those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring them here and slay them. You see, twice it said their problem is they don't want him reigning. Now notice that the Lord gives out these pounds, beginning in verse 12, to these servants. Now, this noble man here, verse 12, this is a word for royalty. This is a prince. The noble man represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And after he did what he was going to do here in this, in this world, when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Then he went away to heaven to receive for himself a kingdom. And then he's going to come back. So it came to pass, verse 15, verse 15, came to pass that when he was returned, Having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to be called to whom he had given the money that he might know how each man had gained, how he had done by, by trading. And he came to the first one and he said, Lord, your pound gained 10 pounds. Well done, he said, good and faithful servant. Verse 17, you've been faithful in very little. I'll give you authority over 10 cities. The second one came in verse 18 and gave him five pounds or five talents. He said, uh, I've uh, gained five more, and the Lord said, that's great. He said, uh, I'm going to give you authority over five cities. The third man said, verse 21, watch this now. He said, I feared you. That's the first thing he said in verse 21. He said, I feared you. I feared you. Because... You are an austere man, and you take up what you don't lay down, and you reap what you don't sow. And Jesus said, the nobleman said to them, out of your own mouth, verse 22, I will judge you, you wicked servant. Watch this now. You knew that I was an austere man. You knew that I do Take up what I don't lay down. And that I do reap what I don't sow. Why then, if you feared me, didn't you take my money to the bank at least? And, and, and at least give me some interest on what I gave you. 
And he said, take from him that which he has and give it to the one that has 10 pounds. And they said, Lord, he already has 10 pounds. And he said, yes. But to those that have, more shall be given. And from those that have not, even that which they have shall be taken from them. Verse 26. Then he said, all of those people that didn't want me to rule over them, bring them here and kill them before me. This is Jesus talking now. This is Jesus talking. Bring them here and slay them before me. So let me ask you a question now. Why did this unfaithful servant fear him? Uh, the first thing I want you to notice is that when Jesus told this parable, he was about to go into Jerusalem. They were very close to Jerusalem. And uh, did Jerusalem love the Lord Jesus Christ? No, they hated him. They hated him. And they're the ones with these people here who said, we are not going to have this Jesus as the Messiah reigning over us. Remember, it was Jesus who said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest and stonest the prophets, how often would I have gathered thee together as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. You didn't want anything to do with me. You remember that? So he's near Jerusalem, which hated him. The Jews, when they were questioned about Jesus by Pilate, they said, we have no king but Caesar. They said, is this Jesus your king? They said, no, we have no king but Caesar. John chapter 19, verse 15. You see, men want to determine for themselves whether they will allow Jesus to reign over them or not. That's what men want. I want you to notice this fellow is called, depending on your translation, a noble man, verse 12. That means he was a prince. That means he was of royal blood. I want you to notice also that these servants, this is the Greek word doulos, and it means slave. Every time you read servants here, these are slaves. We're either slaves to this world, or we are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. And this man in this parable had a right because this is his land, these are his slaves, and this is his money. If you'll notice this, in verse 12, he called his ten servants, verse 13, and he delivered unto them ten pounds. Now, this is his own money that he's given to them. And this is his own land that they're in. My friend, listen, I say this all the time. Let me say it again. You and I belong to Christ. He is our master and you don't have a choice about that. In our generation, I say, won't somebody please make Jesus your Lord? You can't make him Lord. God beat you to it. He made him Lord before the foundation of the world. He is the Lord. 
And you don't have any choice about that. He is your master. And he has a right over all this world and everything and everyone in it. This is his world. And again, Joseph's brothers had two problems, the same two problems that the, the slave here in uh, this chapter had with the nobleman. They have a problem with, I don't want a Savior that reigns over me, and I don't want a Savior that's sovereign. Now why, I ask again, why did the man with one pound fear him? When he came and talked to that fellow, he says, verse 21, I feared thee because you're an austere man, you take up what you didn't lay down, you reap what you didn't sow. What in the world does that mean? It means this. It means I think that what you're demanding from me is unreasonable and unfair. I don't think I ought to have to produce for you. I don't think I ought to have to live in this world for you. This is my life. This is my body. I will do what I please in this world. I don't think it's right for you to demand that I live for you, that I serve you, that I be your slave. Oh, no. No, I'm going to do my own thing, but then I want you to take me to heaven when I die. That's the attitude of the world toward the Christ of Scripture. And that's why he feared him. That word there, you... (laughs) You take up what you don't lay down and you sow what you didn't reap means everything in this world belongs to the Lord and he can do with it as he pleases. He can give uh, this man a zillion dollars and keep this man in poverty. If he wants to. He can do what he wants to. It's his world, isn't it? Men don't like that. They don't like that. They don't like God and they don't like his son. Because his demands are unreasonable. They want the Lord to leave them alone and then take them to heaven when they die. Whose money was it? If you look at verse 23. Why did you not take my money to the bank? You know whose house that is you're living in? That's the Lord's house. You know whose car that is you're driving? That's the Lord's car. The next breath you take, he gives you. And he can give it to you or he can withhold it. That's right. He is God. He's not trying to do something. I hear people say the Lord would, the Lord's trying to show you something. No, he's not trying to show you anything. He'll show you, bless God, or he will, he'll, he'll put you down. He'll put you in a sick bed. He'll do whatever. But if he wants to show you something, he will show it to you. I guarantee you. And again, that's not the Savior. That's not the God. That's not the Jesus that this world wants. He says, this is my money. This is my land. What was the real problem? What was the real problem? I've already read you ahead of time. The real problem is found in verses 14 And 27, they hated him. And the other problem is they were lazy. They wanted to serve themselves, but they didn't want to serve him. 
All right, what will become of those who hate him? Well, it's a sad commentary, but it's verse 27. Jesus said that the noble man, and he's the noble man, will say, those my enemies. Well, who are your enemies, Lord? Who are your enemies? Those who did not want me to reign over them. There it is, verse 27. Bring them here and slay them before me. I don't have any question about the great mercy of God. God is a merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, patient God. If he wasn't, I would have been in hell a long time ago. I'm telling you the truth now. I'm not just trying to entertain you. I'm telling you the truth. I would have been. But, but let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. He is going to bring us to the, the attitude of saying, Thy will be done. In my life, in this world, as it is done in heaven, are we going to be counted as his enemies? You see, that's the struggle. The struggle is, I'm always asking myself, am I really submitting to the Lord? Or, uh, am I really, do I really want His will to be done? When I was up in the hospital in 2020, and they said, we're going to shock your heart. We're going to go in there and see if you need any stents. We're going to see if you've got any, any uh, bubbles or anything in your heart. I was able to say, Lord, thy will be done. Sure, I want to keep living and try to keep preaching and keep enjoying my family and my grandchildren and, and my wife and all of that. But if it's not God's will, I want to be submissive to his will. I don't want to be counted as his enemy. And his enemy are those who don't want him to reign over them. All right, here's the conclusion. I've kept you too long this morning. You know, when you got a mad dog, a mad dog, Brother Barnard used to tell a story about a man that came home, had a little dog named Rover. When he died, he died all over. <laughs> and he came home, and Rover wasn't acting right. And his daddy, his son came in and said, Daddy, Daddy, something's wrong with Rover. Something's wrong with Rover. He said, What's the matter, son? He said, he's in the backyard. Something's wrong with him. His dad said, you stay here. And he went out and he slept out in the background. The rover was over there in the corner and all this stuff was coming out of his mouth. And he came back in and he said, son, rover's mad at us. <laughs> Why is he mad, dad? He's been bitten by something. He's got a disease in him. He doesn't know what he's doing. And if you go out there now, he'll bite you. And they, his little boy said, Dad, what can we do for Rover? What can we do? And his dad said, Son, there's nothing but one thing you can do for a mad dog. And that's to shoot him. That's all you can do for him. Are you mad at God? You mad at the way things are going in your life? I would submit to him. I would call on him and say, Lord, forgive me for being mad at you. <laughs> Forgive me for complaining. Forgive me for murmuring. Forgive me for saying, why is it happening to me? Why not you? Why not me? 
You can't do anything with a mad dog but kill him unless God's pleased to have mercy and change his nature. He tried Israel for 40 years. He told them, he said, everything that you went through for 40 years was to try you. And let me tell you something. Joseph has put his brothers through a final trial. And it's been tough. And our Joseph, our Joseph in heaven, he uses this life and this world to try us. Have we been brought to rejoice in his exaltation? Joseph's brothers, they're going to be brought to exalt, to, not only just to see he's governor, they're going to be brought to rejoice in it. They're going to they're be brought to be happy he's going. <laughs> you know, in heaven, Jesus is a total, absolute dictator, and everybody's happy about it. Guess what? That's where it's supposed to be here. We're supposed to be happy about it. Have we been brought to rejoice in his exaltation? Have we joyfully bowed to his sovereignty? Are we in love with him or with ourselves? Our Savior, like Joseph, went through many trials on the way to the throne. And he has gone away into heaven like this nobleman in Luke 19. He's gone away, but he's coming back. Joseph went away for 20 years, but now he's back and his brothers are terrified. Jesus is coming back. He's been gone over 2,000 years. He's coming back. Are you terrified of his return? Put your trust in him. One more passage if kept you too long. Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews New Testament chapter 12. Look in your table of contents and you can find out what page the book of Hebrews is on. Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years, but he's coming back. And here's what I would say. I would put my trust in him. I would confess my sins to him. I would repent of all my sins against him, and I would call on him. And let me tell you what he'll do. He'll forgive you. He will forgive you. He will receive you. Let me tell you what the Lord does in this world and what he's going to do one day in a big, a big way. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 26, Hebrews 12, verse 26. Verse 25, let's start with verse 25. See that you do not refuse him that speaks. If they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, that back at Mount Sinai, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I'm going to shake not just the earth only, but heaven also. And this word, once more, verse 27, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, that is, things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. You know what those verses say? It says, God shakes things up so that the things that can't be shaken up will be manifested. He shakes them up, and there are some that cannot be shaken. And those are the ones that are standing on a rock in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, he says right here, verse 28, we have received a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear for our God is a consuming fire. Now, Paul, you're not supposed to say that if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews. You're supposed to end this chapter with saying God is love. Well, he is love, but he has a holy love. He has a holy love, and he is so holy that he hates everything that's wicked and evil. And he died on the cross to take the sins of somebody. Can you trust him? I tell you, life is just like the trials, the big trial of Joseph's brothers. Things in this life are unexpected, gut-wrenching, hard blows, brings us to a place that seems hopeless, but guess what? They are divinely directed. But why? To try us, to see if we will stand. Uh, we're going to follow the world down the road that leads to judgment under God. May the Lord add his blessings to the teaching of his word. If you'll stand together with me, I'll dismiss you. Thank you for your patience this morning. I feel that this study was burned in my heart and I have delivered my soul of it. What the Lord wants to do with it is his business. I pray this, if you will seek the Lord while he may be found, you will call upon him while he is near. Again, he is a God of mercy. He is a God of love. He is a God of grace. He's long-suffering. He's patient, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And we're guilty if we don't have the blood of Christ. We're guilty if we're rebelling against him. We don't want him a, a, a Jesus that rules. Let's don't be like Joseph's brothers in their unrepentant state. <laughs> Let's be like Joseph's brothers that we'll see him next week when he reveals himself to them. You talk about some white faces. Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for teaching us your word. Thank you for giving us hearts that rejoice in the Christ, in the Savior that is revealed therein. Forgive us of our sins, we pray, for Christ's sake. Cleanse us from unrighteousness for Christ's sake. Have mercy upon us for Christ's we ask, O oh Lord, that you'll have mercy upon these United States, that you will drive us out of our refuges of lies, that we might seek the truth and stand in the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We know we'll never be free unless we have the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to our hearts and to the hearts of those who've watched by the Internet. For the sake of Jesus, we pray in his name. We ask it for his glory.